0: Brothers and sisters, please then turn with me to our text this morning, which comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Hear with me then the reading of God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus, therefore, encourage one another with these words.
1: Paul, as he draws to a close in his first letter to the church in Corinth, declares our Lord come. Our Lord come. And this is derived from the Greek word maranatha. word that many of you I'm sure have heard and are familiar. And this anticipation, this eager expectation for our Lord to return has always been the view of the Catholic Church and when I say Catholic of course I mean of the universal church the church from Paul on has confessed our desire that the Lord would return and would do so soon we see this even with John in the book of Revelation in chapter 22 verse 20 John says Come, Lord Jesus, We see this likewise in the early creeds and confessions of the church. We see this especially in the Apostles' Creed, right, where we say, we confess Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. But likewise, the church has also always confessed the bodily resurrection as well as in the Apostles' Creed, the Church confesses, we believe in the resurrection of the body. In the Nicene Creed, the Church confesses that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed likewise confesses, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. And so, brothers and sisters, there is no question, this is the standard Orthodox Christian position. And in fact, this is the very same position that we hold here. We stand with the universal church and we confess that we believe in the physical bodily return of our Lord as well as the bodily resurrection of all those who have died prior to his return. In fact, in chapter 31, paragraph 2, in the London Baptist confession, the confession of our church here, we confess this at the last day such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the self same or the exactly the same bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. And in the next chapter chapter 32 in paragraph 1 we confess, God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ so you see brothers and sisters as Christians we love to debate many things so we have fun debating many things but these two topics these two issues the return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead are two topics that are not left up for debate or negotiation. They not, it is antithetical to the Christian religion to deny our Lord's bodily return. It is antithetical to the Christian religion to deny the bodily resurrection when Christ returns. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why you can be pre-lordial. Post millennial, amillennial, and still gather together here and have fellowship at saints. One's eschatological view, for the most part, does not put one outside of the kingdom of God. But there are always exceptions, are right? Always exceptions. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with one eschatological view, which is called preterism. Preterism. And this term preterism means past. So, what it, what their view is is that most of, if not all, of biblical prophecy has been already fulfilled in A.D. 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple. And yet in telling you about preterism, it's very important that I distinguish for you the two types of preterists there are. Because there are two types. There's a orthodox, and then there are heretics. Is there orthodox? And I don't wield the term heretic around lightly at all. But this is the consensus of the Orthodox Church. Okay? Now, the Orthodox are called partial preterists. Partial preterists. These are the Orthodox Christians who believe that most of biblical prophecy has been fulfilled in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But they still see something. Still, see the return of our Lord. They stand with the Orthodox creeds and confessions that we have read this morning. But then there are those who are heretics. They would be turned full preterists because they believe that all of biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so they see Christ no longer returning. They see no longer the bodily resurrection of the saints. And so, brothers and sisters, although there may be much flexibility in how we view the end times, you cannot abandon the orthodox position that the church holds. And that is that Christ will return bodily and that we will be raised bodily to Christ. These are must-haves. Must-haves if you are a Christian. Yet it doesn't mean that all of the other orthodox views are equal uh, correctness or value. Equal correctness or value. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If the, the pre is right, well then the post-millennialist is wrong, right? They, they both can't be right. There has to be a right and a wrong. And because I am standing here before you this morning, it is my position that I am a millennialist. That is the right one. My position that is the right And I want to lay my cards out before you this morning and tell you exactly what my position is because although being a pre or post or off has no basis for one's salvation, it does and can create error within your theology. It can create error in your theology and how you read Scripture. And if you're a premillennial, and specifically the classic dispensationalist type, you approach this text reading it in a far different framework than someone who was post mill or ah would read this text, right? Because so they come to the text seeing two programs that God has one for the church and one for Israel. So they come to this text reading it completely different than you and I might. And so, knowing my position laying it out before you today, I hope that it, it helps you to see whether you agree with me and are right with me. Or if you disagree with me and are wrong, at least it will let you see my exegesis and where I'm coming from. Because all of us, we cannot fool ourselves. Each and every one of us sitting here today come to this text with presuppositions. We approach the text with presuppositions. I think that my presuppositions are rightly derived from the whole testimony of Scripture and especially what we learn from the New Testament eschatology of our Lord Jesus. Now, I'm sure as I go along further today and even next week, and if we we're able to get into 2 Thessalonians, we're going to see more and more differences. I'll be able to point those out to you today. But for right now, I want to turn our attention to our text this morning, starting in verse 13. And we can see right from the beginning that something is, is going on with these saints that it's rattling. Something has rattled the saints. And we see in verse 13, Paul says this but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope and so we see what has rattled them here is that they have a a wrong view about the return of Christ now the prevailing opinion seems to be that what the saints believe is that those who have died before Christ returns have missed out on being raised the wolves that only those who are living when Christ returns will be caught up in the sky with the Lord. And then it's the, the prevailing view. There is another view that perhaps the saints had thought the resurrection had already occurred. This could be another, another view that they thought. But regardless, both positions are wrong. And so Paul says their beliefs need to be corrected. And the reason, he says, their beliefs need to be corrected is because they had a, a lack of understanding. Perhaps they misunderstood Paul's teaching. So Paul says they're, they're uninformed. And so he does not want them to remain uninformed any longer. And so he goes on now to give them the instruction that they need. And he does this for a person. right Paul being the, the consummate minister, the faithful minister, always looking to exhort and correct and to build up the saints. This lack of understanding. And he instructs them. And he helps to bring them into maturity through teaching. And so he tells them I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And why is that? Why does he not want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep? Well, he says it's because he doesn't want them to grieve as those who have no hope. You see, the problem was the saints were grieving beyond what was proper for the belief. The saints were breathing like the pagan world. You see, the, the Greeks and the Romans. I didn't believe in anything for the body after he died. They, they had no hope for the body. In fact, they seen the body as a, as a prison. The body was bad, it was material. I remember it was the Sadducees who said that there was no resurrection to them. And others. Who were once thought of as christians at one time were now teaching that the resurrection had already occurred we read this in paul's letter to timothy 2nd timothy chapter 2 verses 16-18 paul tells timothy this but avoid the irreverent battle for it will lead people into more and more ungodly and their talk will spread like gangrene among them are hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth Saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting some of the things. See, this goes back to what I just said earlier about the heresy of, of preterism. This is what I was describing. Old also, the full preterist. Also is termed the Hymenaean heresy. It's it termed this based on this text here, what Hymenaeus was teaching. And so the full preterist, all I do is, is take what was taught here and then recycle it. And they teach that the resurrection has already happened. But what does Paul say of such a person? He says they swerve from the faith. They aren't brothers. Instead, they're upsetting the saints and causing people to question their faith. And this type of teaching was the reason why the saints were so distraught when believers died. They're thinking, what's going to happen to the saints who have died and the Lord has not returned yet? And what's Paul's response? Don't behave as those who have no hope. And this is a rebuke to each and every one of us as well, isn't it, brother? We as Christians are to behave as if we have a hope. Our hope in Christ, our hope of resurrection, our hope of being with Him again. And still, in saying that, isn't it so much easier to say something as opposed to actually living it out? When it's time to put up or shut up, that's when the rubber really meets the road. When you're put to the test, what you say you believe is is put to the test, then how do you respond? When you become ill, perhaps even to the point of death, how do you respond? you begin to to wail and become become unhinged at the thought of death? Or if you learn that a loved one was going to be passing or has passed? Do you become unhinged? Do you turn to ungodly means as a way to to help your depression about such things. I'm sure many of us know people like this. But that should be expected from those who have no hope beyond this world, who see no future for our bodies. This is why the pagans were so distraught when death occurred. Because if this is all that there is, then death is a terrible and devastating thing something much to be maligned. Like, because death means no more. Death. You go away and you wither into the ground. And one of the authors that I was reading in preparation for today gave an example of uh, the atmosphere of how it was when he went to two funerals. He went to a, a funeral of a believer, and he went to the funeral of an unbelief. And he says that the funeral of believer was incredibly sad tragic because you know that the unbeliever when he dies is going to eternal destruction eternal hellfire separated from Christ forever so it was a somber time and then he describes when he went to the funeral of a believer and of course yes it was sad and somber but then they ended singing Christian hymns about the resurrection of the saints. They encouraged each other with the Word of God, knowing that this brother's spirit went to be with the Lord. This is the view of death, brothers and that we are to have. This is the hope that we are to show. And yes, it's absolutely okay to, to grieve and to weep when someone dies not Christ do this at the death the death of Lazarus but well, what's wrong is when we act like this is all that there is when we become so in utter despair over death when we despise death even in, in favor of continuing to live upon this world that is what's wrong and so we want to ask today is what is Paul teaching the saints so that they would not react to death, in the manner of those unbelievers who surround us. And it's the question that we're aiming to answer for the remainder of our time. And it will also be the answer we seek to to give next week as we look at this text as well. So this will be part one. Next week will be part two. And so like any good sermon, I have three points. but We're only going to get to point one today. And so point one is that Paul informs the saints that just as Christ died and rose again, those who died in Christ will be bodily resurrected at the Lord's return. That's point one. Point two is that Paul informs the saints that when Christ returns, it will be a cataclysmic event, which will be visible to all, which results in eternal life in Christ for the believer. And the third and final point is that Paul teaches them this doctrine. So, that it would be an encouragement to the saints, and that it would lead them to live holy lives. This is Paul's purpose. So, then looking at point one, Paul informs the saints of justice Christ died and rose, believers likewise will be bodily resurrected at Christ's return. So, look with me at verses 14 and 15. Paul says this For since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul tells us, that We have hope because we have Christ. We have hope because we have Christ. See, The ungodly are hopeless this is why they react in such a fashion when death comes upon them. But the Christians have hope in the one who has defeated death. We hope in the one who has defeated death. This is why Paul says our reaction ought to be 180 degrees different than that of the unbelieving world. You see, brothers and sisters, it would be one thing if our hope was only in earthly Christ. If our hope was only now in Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that if that's the case, we are to be most pitied among all men. If our hope is just now, temple in the earth, in Christ. In in fact, it isn't. As we're told, Christ was raised from the dead, and now he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Christ being the first fruits has now guaranteed that we too will follow. You can think about the, the farmer who plants his crops and the first fruits come up from the ground. What will follow? Soon after. More crops will sprout from the ground. And so Paul is using this imagery for us, calling Christ the first fruits, telling us that those who have fallen asleep will likewise be risen from the dead. just Resurrection of all those who have fallen asleep will surely follow. And so, what great confidence this ought to give us that knowing that even if we die before the Lord returns, we surely will be raised with Him as He returns because Christ has. And so, this should be a point of joy and hope and assurance for the believer. And it's this reality that actually underscores Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 15 to 56, when he says this Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's telling the saints there's no reason to look at death as something <clears throat> dreadful, as something to run away for in fear and terror. This is why we as Christians call the return of Christ our blessed hope. The return of Christ to the Christian is a blessed hope. Paul says this to Titus in Titus chapter two, verse thirteen. We ought to be waiting for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. See, brothers and sisters, we are to be looking at the return of Christ as something that's highly valued. As something that's highly sought after, as something that's highly desirable for us. It should be the greatest, the Christian's greatest hope here on earth. And so this should cause us to not only be moved to sadness and compassion when someone dies, which is a natural reaction for all men, but it should also move us to joy, which is not natural to men, but is something that is given to us and planted to us by God. Knowing that those who have died who are believers will be forever experiencing inexpressible joy with the with our Lord in heaven. Wake understanding that it is to come to And that starts, Paul says, at death. It starts at death. I know that Paul here speaks of those who are dead as already asleep. Because they're already asleep. some have taken this language and tried to, to come up with something that's called. Soul sleep. The teaching that when you die, not only does your body go into the ground, but your soul goes into some intermediate state instead of going to be with the Lord. But to say that someone was asleep in this time, even centuries past, is simply to mean that they were physically dead. David in Psalm 13 says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Being asleep just means someone is dead. And nowhere in Scripture does Paul or anyone else teach that the, the soul lays idle until Christ returns. In fact, Paul teaches the exact opposite thing, doesn't he? Explicitly. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body than at home with the Lord. Paul teaches absent from the body, present with the Lord. Isn't this the teaching of our own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Is he hanging from the cross? And he says to the thief, Him, today you will be with me in paradise. And where did Christ's body go that day? It went to the grave. But their spirit linked to be with the Lord immediately when they died. And so bodily death for Paul means that our spirit immediately returns to the Lord. Yet, brothers and sisters, the separation of body and spirit was not our Lord's design. Separation of body and spirit was not our Lord's design. Rather, separation of body <coughs> and spirit is a result of the fall. The separation is a result of the fall. When God created man, He created him from the dust of the earth, and then He breathed into man His soul, uniting body and soul prior to the fall which was meant to never be separated they were to remain united it was sin that caused the separation and so now brothers and sisters we await the union of body and soul where they will never be separated again when our Lord returns and so Paul tells the things you don't have to fear because even those who, who have died who are in the ground right now when the Lord appears their body will rise And they will meet their soul once more and be reunited forever. Paul, in fact, tells us that those who are in the ground when the Lord returns will, in fact, come before you and who are living. We will not precede those who are in the grave. They will come first. The dead will rise, and then all who are alive will follow. And so that covers everybody all living, all dead. Now the, the dispensationalists, for all their ridicule of the reform for spiritualizing or allegorizing our text in light of their literal interpretation of Scripture, seem to have abandoned that literal interpretation of Scripture here in our text today. Nowhere from this text do we read of a of a secret rapture, where Christ comes back and just takes the church up to be with Nowhere in this text. Do we see a, a seven year tribulation period between the the, the, the gathering of the, the church and the gathering of Israel? Nowhere do we see this. Even Matthew 25 tells us right, that when the Lord returns for the last final time in the second advent, he then will separate sheep and goats. One to eternal hellfire, one to eternal Nothing else. He returns. He judges. That's it. New heavens, new earth. And so you either go to eternal hellfire to be separated from Christ for all eternity, or if you are a believer, you go to be with the Lord forever and ever. Now there are also some who say that because Paul doesn't actually bring up believers in our text today, excuse me, doesn't bring up unbelievers in our text today. That unbelievers, in fact, do not rise from the dead. They just stay dead in the ground. But Paul is clear that there is one resurrection and one judgment for all people. One resurrection, one judgment for believers and unbelievers alike. And this occurs when Christ returns. Paul says this to the governor Felix in Acts 24, when he's brought before the governor on charges that he's inciting riot. And that he's leading the sect, and Paul actually describes what he says is a common belief between them all. As he stands before the governor, and he says, "Having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust." But Paul also says in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse ten, "For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body." Whether good or evil, there is one judgment in which you are separated, and good Chief will go. from evil, sheep from goats, believers from unbelievers, and it is at this final time in Christ church. Yet you see that Paul doesn't bring up this in our text, because really. in fact it has nothing to do with what Paul is writing to the saints about it. Paul is writing to the saints, we have learned, for the purpose of encouraging them. And informing them because they have a lack of understanding about what is going to happen to the saints who have already died and the Lord has not returned yet. And so bringing out dead unbelievers serves no purpose in Paul's exhortation here today. But that doesn't detract from the fact that this is Paul's teaching throughout the Scripture. That this is what we see in teaching in his letters and epistles. That both believer and unbeliever will be risen. From the dead, and everyone will have to stand before the judgment seat of God. And so, for the believers, this should be a cause of great celebration for us. Paul says, "Those who have, those who are in Christ, whether dead or alive, don't have to worry, because when Christ returns, we will be reunited in body and in soul." But a hope that is for all of us, even those of us who have have lost believing loved ones, if you lost a believing parent. Or a believing spouse or child. What a great encouragement and hope this is for us to know that that is not all that the Lord has for them. When He returns, they will be raised from the dead and given new glorified bodies to be with Him forever. What a great joy that ought to be for us in knowing that if Christ were to return today to take His church, then what would happen? We would be glorified with God today and with him for all of eternity. And then, brothers and sisters, we would have the very image of God stamped upon our soul perfect. Only then will we be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. Then will we have put on for all eternity immortality, glory and power. Only then will we no longer suffer. Persecution and affliction and illness and suffering. What a great time to think about this. And so I plead, if there are any unbelievers who might hear this or who are amongst us, to repent and to believe and trust in Christ. For death is a terrible thing for the one who does not believe, because death means no more ability to believe. You see, when Christ returns, your any hope to trust in him that goes away. Right? Your ability to believe in him ends when Christ descends. And so if you hear this today, yeah, believe and you will be saved. And you too can have assurance of salvation. You too can look forward with all the saints, the blessed hope, the appearing of Christ in the sky. You too then can declare with all the saints everywhere Maranatha, our Lord comes. Fire. Heavenly Father we thank you for your word It is so deeply needed We thank you that we continue to be taught by your word So if there is any misunderstanding or lack of understanding You provide for us uh, the correction and instruction that we need for your word so we thank you for this. We thank you that you give us your word as an encouragement that we would not behave as those who have no hope. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would grant to us the increase of grace that we need, that you would strengthen our hope and our assurance so that we would not act like the unbelieving world, but rather we would react to death in the manner in which you have called us, in a manner that is not only sad. That not only shows compassion for them, those who have passed before us, but also with the joy for the believer, knowing that when Christ returns, we will meet him in the sky, and we will be in the presence of our great, glorious King forevermore. So, Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name and pray. Amen.